Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Hey, everybody. Wow, that is some applause. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. You'll see I have a new co-host for the yes. show. Uh, Maven, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I I have good old faithful here for real now. I, I'm not broadcasting from bed anymore. So. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's a it's a step. And I, I'm it's been almost six months now. So that's my this is my like win for the week. So I'm well, excited. I just, are there any announcements that we need to make before getting into the program? I'm not aware of any. You got none? I've got none other than who our awesome guest is going to be today. Well, I want to introduce him here in just a second. Uh, and by way of introduction, I want to say this is Mormonism Live. It is March 8th, 2023. It's episode 117, I believe, if you can believe that. And the title of tonight's show is, is How it, Mormons... Is it 118? Uh, is it 117? <laughs> I think so. Why did you? I I thought it was one eighteen. I might we might have to fix some things after. Oh, I could be wrong. It's it's just as likely to be me. The audience <laughs> will know, and they'll tell us any second now. So. Yeah, tell us in the in the live <laughs> yeah. chat. By the way, Maven is co-hosting, so she's not able to ride herd on the live chat. So I want everybody there to mind your p's and q's, okay? And we're putting backyard professor in charge of all of you. He's going to be moderating your comments. So be nice to him, okay? Otherwise, he'll probably be banning people right and left. There'll be nobody left in the live chat by the time we're done with tonight's show. <laughs> but whatever episode number it is, it is still March 8th, 2023. And the title is still, How Mormons Twist Scripture to Worship Wealth. Now, last week, we had an episode entirely dealing with the SEC order that they had issued in a fine of EPA, Ensign Peak Advisors, $4 million, and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, $1 million. We went over that multi-page order in some detail, and we covered the legal aspects of it. We're not doing the legal aspects of it tonight. We are addressing a similar and related issue, but we're going to look at the scriptures tonight. And who better to look at the scriptures with than Dr. David Bakavoy, because I understand he's somewhat of an expert when it comes to scriptures he's is, read a couple uh, let's good see books if, he's written a few books he, well he, he's read a couple good books he went to a, do good a good university school. brandeis yeah. is pretty good let's bring him on shall we here we go here's dr david bakavoy whoops i'm sorry you put him on i took him off wow this is incredible thank you so much I, that's the warmest applause and welcome that i've received i don't know in many a year so Thank yeah. you so much. Doesn't it feel good? But I'll it tell does. you something that uh, David uh, contacted me. The reason that he's on the show tonight is because he contacted me. He told me that he is very enthusiastic, passionate is probably a better word, about this whole issue about tithing and specifically about the church and its apologist use of passages of scripture from the Bible in order to justify 
the hoarding of immense amounts of wealth in the Inside Peak account. And I didn't even know what it was he wanted to talk about. He contacts me. David says, hey, I got something I'm really passionate about. I'd love to come on the show and talk about it. I said, boom, done. You're in. Without even knowing what it was about at the time. Because if David Bakavoy is passionate about something and wants to come on the show to share it, the answer is going to be yes. And you are like the only person in the world. I think I can count on the fingers of one finger the number of people that would do that and would get that reception. And I think the entire audience, by the way, David, this isn't just me. The entire audience, I'm sure, is agreeing right now. And if not, backyard professor, you know who to ban. So... <laughs> Uh, but yes, absolutely. And this is what it was about. I found out later. It's a great subject and no one better talk about it than Dr. Bakavoy. So David, how did this whole thing come about? I know that the SEC order has been, uh, exploding across the blogger knackle for over a week now, and it came to your attention. What happened there and what was your response and what have you done about it so far before tonight's show? Thank you so much, RFN, and also Maven for this opportunity. I I really am grateful that I have a chance to be able to speak out and share some things. As RFN uh, stated, that I am passionate about, uh, that I feel are very that is very important to share. Um, and it's a good question, RFN, because those who know me well know that this is not a foray that I like to jump into very often anymore. I feel usually pretty disconnected from things pertaining to Mormonism, the LDS church. I, I, I live a different life now. I'm, I'm very focused on my work. I've been working on uh, building a um, college program in the Utah prison system to help incarcerated men and women pursue associate's degrees. That takes up a lot of my time and focus. And then I enjoy living life to the fullest with my family and friends, dancing and, and hiking and and uh, there's there, there's there's just too much service and too much joy to be had to to get too worked up over issues that that for the most part do not affect my day to day life any longer. Um, but this is one that does. It has troubled me since uh, the days of my youth, and uh, has continued to be a concern in my life. And when the rulings came out uh, regarding the penalties that the LDS Church would pay for would face for uh, their illegal investment procedures and practices. I, it hurt RFM. I, I just, I, I don't know what to say other than that it hurt, even though I do feel disconnected and am living my own independent spiritual life. And uh, one of the things that concerns me, and this is why I, I reached out, is that uh, throughout the years, those who, whether the LDS churches financial practices and and the way that they take tithing from the the membership of the church is right or wrong that can be debated back and forth and i have my strong feelings as do both of you on this topic but what should not be debated is what the bible itself proclaims about these issues and unfortunately um, those who defend the LDS church, including church leaders themselves, have turned to the Bible in an effort to um, explain the church's financial practices and have used these texts and in the process have, have uh, misconstrued what it truly is happening there in terms of historical understanding of what these passages represent. And, and so um, not only do I feel passionate about this idea that churches, including the one that I spent so many years devoted to, should 
um, be honest and forthright in their financial endeavors and that they should use their time and resources to help the poor and needy. It, it's, it, I do feel that people have a right to understand what the biblical passages mean historically that are used to defend these practices. And I felt, I felt, sorry, just to end it, I, I just felt, I, I felt it would be a bit selfish of, of, on my part if I just sat back and didn't say anything, because not everyone has had a chance to really look carefully at these biblical texts and, and can parse through the arguments and, and see what's happening. And so I, felt that desire. So thank you for the opportunity. Oh, I think that's great because from my point of view, just being, you know, raised, well, I joined when I was 18, but being a member of the church for so long, my understanding is tithing's taught in the Bible and tithing means a 10th of your gross if you want gross blessings and a 10th of your net if you want net blessings. And that's pretty much as cut and dried as that. But I understand from your analysis, it is anything but that cut and dried. By the way, David, before we get into the scriptural mm -hmm. passages, my understanding from talking with you is that this has been an issue that has concerned you for a long time, even since your mission. Is that correct? That's correct, RFM. And I, 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 I'd, I'd like to start. I appreciate that. I'd, I would like to start with that. I uh, grew up as a teenager along the um, Mexican border in, in San Diego. And as a young man, my friends and I would go down in, in Ensenada and Tijuana and, and, and surf and, 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 pursue activities. And uh, in the process, we would have coming back across the border would experience great poverty. And I'd see the, uh, particularly the women and the children begging in the streets. And it, it impacted me deeply as a young man. Um, I, uh, I, it just, I felt so passionate about it. I, um, I shared with you that I had at, at age 16, I was coming across, I felt so deeply touched by some of the things that I'd seen. I sat and I picked up my guitar, I wrote a song about it. And now that I have kind of left, I don't do as much with scholarship these days. And I'm interested in going back to my passion for music. Uh, it, with the local band I play with here in Utah, we recorded this song, finally, Nickels and Dimes. And it um, it talks about uh, a, a woman who is um, begging for, for coins on the Mexican border from U.S. tourists. And, uh, you know, just it, just writing that song when I was 16 years old helped me feel a little bit better. And uh, so it's been fun to return to uh, that musical expression and, and the concerns that I've had since I was a young man. And they continued from that point on into um, in my mission. As you said, I served in Brazil and I was a deep and devout, sincere believer. I worked very hard and had opportunities to, to serve. And yet and yet going into these homes, oftentimes without um, indoor plumbing, these homes where uh, without, uh, without floors and um, that the women and would have to sweep down with their, their brooms and pack the earth down so that it wouldn't be dusty and that their homes would be clean. And I would teach them these beautiful doctrines that had become important to me in my life at that point and then turn to tithing. And it felt wrong, RFM. I just, it bothered me deeply in light of what I had seen, what I'd experienced, my concern about poverty, that I was professing this, this concept when these people did not have the luxuries that I had grown up with as a young man privileged in Southern California. And so, um, and then to fast forward, coming home, it never set right with me, uh, given my my passions and, and, and beliefs and convictions. And then 
Um, I, I, you know, I was raised that way just to be a little bit more personal. My father is a convert to the LDS church and he would, we grew up as children hearing a story that he would tell about how he had written a poem uh, about how he never wanted to attend church where communion was given in a fancy chalice. Instead, he wanted to attend church someday where they gave communion in a paper cup. And so when he went in as a man after the Vietnam War into an LDS church and they handed him that paper cup of communion, it fulfilled that wish that he had expressed as a young man for a church that did not put emphasis on wealth and resources, but instead on on service and didn't require something grandiose like a chalice. I grew up with these sorts of views and, and perspectives about what spirituality entailed and then those concerns as a missionary and as a young teenage boy in San Diego. I will share this one so people can know. I, I do want to share this. I My mission, how troubled I was by these things. I was in the southern part of Brazil. It was very cold. And I remember coming through the streets. We were traveling through at one time and I saw a pack of young boys, you know, 10, nine, eight-year-old young boys on the street and they were shivering. It was so very cold. And um, I walked by them as a missionary with my companion and I couldn't, it hurt it hurt to see them in that condition. And I wished I could do more. And I turned around and my Brazilian companion said, what are you doing? I said, I can't walk by that. And I walked up to these young men in their pack and I took off the coat. It was the coat I had brought with me from the United States, the only one I had. And I laid it down on top of those young, young boys in the street. And I put it on them and covered them up because I couldn't take what I was seeing. And um, my mission companion said, what are you doing? You can't get another coat like that. And I never did for the rest of my mission. I just piled on extra sweaters and things like that in Southern Brazil because of what I was seeing and experiencing. And um, it made tithing very difficult to teach. And then I came home as and 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 so devoted and 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 believing in the institution and its doctrines and its theology that I devoted my profession, my academic pursuits to it. And I recall March of 2012, and I recall it very well because of how hard, it, how bad it hurt me to watch the leaders of my church step forward in front of that Gateway Mall and cut the ribbon for the church's brand new shopping mall that they had purchased. And in unison, these spiritual leaders of mine proclaim the words, let's go shopping. And that hurt because of what I had done in Brazil as a missionary and how I had asked for sacrifices. And I know that they explained that it was not the tithing revenues, but the investments that financed the mall. But at the end of the day, it's still the same. We're still extracting revenue from the poor and the needy and using it to finance wealthy projects that um, that are encouraging materialism. Any spiritual leader from Jesus, Muhammad, to the Buddha, to Confucius, will look and say, we focus too much on materialism. And yet there were my spiritual leaders encouraging it, not only encouraging people to go shopping and spend their money on these resources of materialism, the antithesis of the spirituality I was raised with as a child. It just, it just hurt RFM. And so even though I do feel very disconnected for the most part from these issues, when something like this surfaces, I feel a need to speak out and, and, and to say something so that the information is out there so people can understand the biblical text and the history and then make an informed 
uh, decision on how they're going to lead their lives in this area. Well, I'm glad you're here tonight. Maven's been doing some scouring of the internet and found a clip of exactly what it is you're talking about, including the one, two, three before the famous expression from the then first presidency, (laughs) Thomas Monson. And uh, there was uh, the silver fox was with him. And who was the third person? Was it I-Ring at the time? Probably. Well, let's see if we can recognize them. They're there with a bunch of other dignitaries, but you'll be able to see them and hear this uh, wonderful expression that has become infamous in certain circles. And then we have this other clip, which has the same thing with a little bit after it. All right. And you just tell me when you want it to stop by them. Shopping. Well, it certainly is um, an exciting time for us with City Creek Center opening. First of all, the City Creek Center is simply spectacular. They're simply spectacular. It's a place beyond just something with great architectural features. We have an amazing lineup of stores here. And so we have great names like Tiffany, Michael Coors that are all new to the market. There really is something here for everyone. And it's a great place to come and shop and dine. I think that's probably enough. Something here for everyone except for the Son of Man. Yeah. Except for that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, there, there was more than one like topiary like person performing on that day. And it, I don't know, it's just strange. And I, that clip goes on for a while and they name off even more uh, brands that they have. Um, they, you know, Macy's and, you know, some of the other like department stores and things. And Yeah. So, David, what was it about that? If you can articulate and encapsulate this uh, story you've been telling us from before your mission, on your mission, after your mission, what is it about the church's approach to tithing in a thumbnail that you find concerning? Well, as a believer, it bothered me because I felt that our church's practices were inconsistent with Jesus's teachings and, in fact, the ethics and values that are promoted in the Bible. And so, as a believer, that concerned me. And and if we look at, at the defenses that are offered about the church's investment practices, uh, whether they are by apologists or by the LDS First Presidency itself, uh, they or draw the upon yeah they draw upon the Bible as explain for an explanation for why the church does what it does in 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 tithing all of its members, including the poor and the needy and in investing its funds to make more and more wealth. I wanted to uh, jump in too. I think, and this isn't really the central topic of of what we're going into because we're going into the scripture, but one of the things, and we can bring this up later too, is what I'm seeing, especially on the believer side, is the idea that this money is really going toward good things. So it's not just the justifications for why they have the money, um, but people think that it's it's going to things that it is clearly not and we have we have a uh, clips that we can show for that but I, do you want to do that at the, we can do that part at the end let's let's get into the into the scriptures okay david can you t- tell us a little bit about the historical origin of the tithe this whole principle this whole doctrine biblically and in the lds church thank you yes yeah. so the first thing to note is that um, when the lds church Uh, addresses this issue in the media. They will quite frequently refer to it as the meaning the tithing practice as something that is biblically based and mandated 
um, from a Bible perspective and articulated quite clearly there. And um, I would, I, I think people should recognize that that is simply incorrect. That um, the reality is tithing is not a central important tenant in the Bible. It appears only a couple of times mentioned in the New Testament. Jesus never shows any real interest in it whatsoever. And the very first reference to tithing that appears in the Hebrew Bible or the Christian Old Testament actually appears in Genesis chapter 14. It's in verses 17 through 20, where, um, yeah, where Abram, who becomes Abram, who becomes Abraham, will go to Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and and offer 10% of the spoils that he that he obtained through war. It's the booty. He, he, he is grateful that he was successful in battle. And so he wants to honor Yahweh. It's not something that even God himself requires or asks the patriarch to give. God shows no interest in tithing. Abraham just voluntarily wants to give 10% of the spoils that he receives in that account. And then if we consider the covenant of ancient Israel, tithing is not part of that covenant. It is not what defines a covenantal people from a biblical perspective. It is mentioned very briefly, <clears throat> excuse me, and only a couple of times within the Hebrew Bible itself, and it is never an important stipulation of the covenantal relationship between God and his people. Perhaps the only exception to that RFM would be Deuteronomy 14. Which Can you is hang on just I, a second? Sure. Only because I want to uh, insert the fact that whenever I hear about tithing in Mormonism, it's always Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, open okay. ye the windows of heaven, right? And yes. bring you all the tithes into the storehouse. There may be meat in mine house, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure you know it as well as I do, if not better. But then you had mentioned Deuteronomy 14 in regard to tithing. And I'm going, what the what? Deuteronomy 14? I don't recall ever hearing Deuteronomy mm. 14 quoted in a talk on tithing in the LDS church. Maybe I just missed it, but this was all news to me. So I'm very excited for you to share this with the audience. It is. And I'm glad you referred to that because indeed, um, you know, Malachi is an interesting text. First of all, it's, it's interpreted as a universal law by the LDS church. And yet uh, many scholars who read that, that passage think that it is a temporary injunction that is given to the Israelites based upon uh, the fact that they felt disconnected or they were showing a disconnect between Yahweh or the Lord God after the exile. And one of the reasons that scholars will read it that way is because um, uh, is the fact that uh, Malachi says, oh, test God, at, uh, test God and see if you pay your tithes, then he will open up the windows of heaven. It's mainly in the Hebrew Bible, God that tests man. And, and the very few times that a man or a human tests God, it, it typically doesn't go well. So it, it seems, at least from this reading, to be not a general injunction for time and all eternity, but hey, let's do this because the post-exilic community is struggling. I don't want to get too weighted down by that Malachi section. Yeah. Right. To bring it in, into the modern sorry, day, I always ahead. thought it. It I was thought it wrapped up really nice, and it seemed for some of the biblical language obviously being difficult because of our fascination with the King James version above all others. Uh, it just bring me all the or bring ye the tithes into the storehouse. It's it's really easy 
to understand the blessings right there. So I think obviously from a non-scholarly point of view, it seems to be very easily adaptable to to the lesson that the, our leaders want to say about it. Yeah, now that you mention it, David, it does sound temporary, doesn't it? And contextually, it does sound like you've got a group of people who are having a tough time and need some help from God with their crops and with the rains. And therefore, because of that circumstance, this passage gets written, bring you all the tithes into the storehouse and then test God, see if he won't open the windows of heaven, pour you out a blessing so great there shall not be room enough to receive it. It does seem very temporary and applied to that specific circumstance. I hadn't seen that before. Indeed, it does. And it, it's read that way by some scholars. And whether it, he meant it for time and perpetuity, we, uh, it, it is, it, I, don't, I, I don't know. I don't think so. But regardless, if it was meant that way, then we should look at what some of the biblical examples of tithing truly are. Because when the LDS Church and its defenders say tithing is a biblical practice— well, what is the biblical practice? We talked about the Abraham story, but this one from Deuteronomy 14, I find very fascinating because thank you for the slide, Maven. It's lovely. Deuteronomy 14, 22 through 23. What we're seeing here is that it is instructing the people to tithe um, their seed, uh, their grain, their wine, their oil, their firstlings of herds and flocks. And then... Um, once that that is tied, the farmer himself who presents that as as sacred to God, he the person who ties himself, he consumes the tithe in the temple as a as a sacrificial meal with his extended family. And then there's the stipulation will be added that the Levite um, is from his family's hometown is to join them because Rick will remember our biblical rules and and regulations. Levites did not possess land and could not therefore produce their own tithe. So that's why they're invited to the communal sacred meal. So it's something that the the individual who is tithed use, uses himself those resources. They're not given to an institution in this passage. Um, instead, each family, really, if we look at, it, is expected to eat those tithes as a sacrificial meal every two years. And then the third year, Rather than just consuming it as a, an extended family, they take those, those things that are dedicated to God and they give those to the orphans, the widows in the local community to be used immediately for their relief. And, and, and so there's a biblical tithe. And I find that to be very different than a church or an institution that says, give us 10% of your increase every year. If you want to participate in, in exalting and saving rituals, if you want to be able to watch your children be, be married and participate in family rituals together, then you must pay us 10% of your increase so that we can use this in a way that we determine is most appropriate, whether it's shopping malls or whatever it might be. But we will do this. That's Did you just say so that different. Families, the initial tithe of food, it would be their own that they would be eating. Did I yes. understand you right? Yes. So, in other words, so they're so not even is... giving yes, it to somebody else. It's the first two years, it's for their own family. Mm -hmm. And then the third year, mm -hmm. it goes out. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Uh, with the exception of the Levite. Now, the idea behind right. this is a little different than we think of spiritually. And that is that they are recognizing, honoring, and giving this 
sacred present to God, and then God extends this back and gives them this to them immediately. So it's a reciprocal relationship that is uh, gets into the, the, the technical distinguish, di distinguishes in the Hebrew Bible between um, offerings versus sacrifices. I don't want to get bogged down in the weeds, but the long story short is um, when people say there is a biblical tithe, there are biblical tithes, there are biblical viewpoints, because the Hebrew Bible, which talks most about um, tithing, is a collection of diverse religious material written over a thousand-year time period. The earliest portions of the Hebrew Bible were written approximately 1200 BCE, and the latest sections were about 200. So during that thousand-year time period, we find a diversity of social, religious, political, historical viewpoints expressed as we would expect. And so anytime someone says there's a biblical view on God or there's a biblical view on marriage, there's a biblical view on tithing, we know that they really do not have a correct, sophisticated understanding of what is and is not in the Bible, for there is a diversity or plethora of perspectives. And this perspective on the tithe, the biblical tithe, if you will, is beautiful, I think, and it has principles that I would love to see the LDS Church incorporate in practice because it seems a lot more ethical than what's happening now. David, is there anything in the original Hebrew for the word tithe that denotes one-tenth the way we think of it today? Indeed, yes. And that is something that is often picked up upon, a tenth, a tithe that is connected. And um, it is often used then to illustrate this idea that this has been a an eternal principle. And yet going back even into Mormonism itself, um, I, I see as someone who's interested in the history, a shifting of understanding that is important to identify. For um, I think most contemporary Latter-day Saints view tithing as a supplement to the law of consecration that uh, the law of consecration was revealed by God and is the higher order that the saints were unable to practice because of their selfishness and the wickedness of the land, and yet will be implemented when Jesus returns and the kingdom is fully established. And in the meantime, tithing is used as a supplement for that law of consecration in this understanding, which places a very serious religious obligation upon members to pay it and contribute it. But even in Mormonism, that is a false understanding of its history because tithing was added onto the law of consecration as an addition to it. Joseph Smith's theology is that people consecrate their entirety to God and that it's distributed equally so that there is equality and equity amongst the saints. And then the, any increase that is what should be given in terms of a tithe. So this idea that be, that comes up and surfaces in contemporary Mormonism, that tithing is something that replaces the law of consecration is important to recognize because once that happens, that takes tithing in the way that it existed in the Bible and even in early Mormonism, uh, which was a little bit more um, free and voluntary than it is now, certainly, and it places it on the level of consecration. And with that understanding, the leaders then are able to put great pressure upon the members of the church to pay that 10% if they are going to be in good standing. Hmm. 
Yeah, it's interesting in the temple that we have sort of a back to the future moment every time we go through the endowment and we are put under covenant to consecrate. The law of consecration is what we take the covenant to obey, even though actually we're not obeying the law of consecration. We are supposed to obey the law of tithing as it is yeah. currently interpreted. Yeah. yeah. Maven, anything from you? No, I was just thinking just how amazing it is that something can come from, again, when, when you were bringing up uh, the Malachi scripture, that it, was, it wasn't ever asked for. Like you said, uh, David, that it, it was a gratitude offering. It was something that he wanted to do, that Abram wanted to do. And in the early days of the church, if it was that way, that it was initially a free will giving, I think it's just amazing how well the church can twist it so much that it is coerced now, but they still do it in a way to make you feel like you are giving when you are not, when you, you are under coercion to be with your eternal family but the number of active members and i'm sure the chat will agree i'm sure they've also seen this that are defending you know all the all the news that comes out and defending the church's wealth will will say that nobody's forcing me nobody forced you you know and, and they I don't know. It's just boggling my mind right now. Just and and that's how I felt. I I literally said the same things to people. If if people were to bring up any kind of disparity, I mean, for one, I was under the delusion that that the money was being used well and was taking care of people. But then, yeah, I if anyone would have said or pointed out to me, well, yeah, I mean, actually, my brother did. So my my one brother, um, he was apostate long before me. It religion never really took for him. That was one of the things that he brought up to me right after my mission. We we were in a car ride going to visit one of our parents. And yeah, he was like, you have to pay money to go to the temple in order to be sealed to your family, in order to get all of these blessings. So it requires payment. And I argued with him. I was like, no, it's not the same. It's not the same. Anyway, that's a big old tangent. But I... I, I guess it's just amazing to me, like how opposite it can be from how it started. And the, and the church can just get away with it and, and make us feel like it's our free will offering. Well, yeah, it's like saying that you don't have to pay taxes either. Nobody's forcing <laughs> you to pay taxes. It's just if you don't, you go to prison. But it's still right. voluntary. Right. It's the same thing with tithing. Uh, you, nobody's forcing you to pay tithing. But if you don't pay it, then you don't go to the celestial kingdom. You don't go to heaven. Yeah. As most or you don't Christians go to your kid's wedding. Exactly. There's here and now consequences, not just there and then consequences. Yeah. Um, are we ready to go to the New Testament now, David? Let's do it. I think we should. Okay, let's look go at ahead, this one. Next. Okay. Okay, you got Luke 12. Thank you, Maven. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, so what we're looking at um, in, in Luke 12 is a very interesting parable. And the reason I asked Maven to show us this is because... Um, if we turn from the Old Testament and go in the Hebrew Bible and we go then into the New Testament to see Jesus's teachings on this matter, Jesus has very specific views that are articulated time and time again and can be expressed as they are in the Sermon on the Mount from the Gospel of Matthew in chapter six. He says, literally, it is impossible for a human being to serve both God and mammon, which is Aramaic for wealth. And we think about how Jesus taught these ideas about the, the fact that it is easier for a, a camel to pass through the eye of a, a sewing needle 
than it is for a camel to, or sorry, than a, a rich man to get into the kingdom. And meaning it is impossible, despite the fact that it's often ter- interpreted mer- metaphorically and symbolically. Jesus is saying you cannot be wealthy. You cannot be rich because you must surrender that wealth. You must surrender your investments and give it to the poor and the needy and take care of them if you want to be part of the kingdom that he is teaching about. And this reflects his views, which are highly apocalyptic, that the world would end, and therefore wealth would be entirely unnecessary. The first would be last, the last would be first. I recognize, you guys, that Jesus's teachings on wealth and and, and riches are entirely impractical for a capitalistic society or for the modern world. I recognize right. that. Um, and he had an apocalyptic view that that led him to encourage his followers to surrender everything to the poor and the needy. It's not practical. Um, And yet, and yet, I still believe that he said some very smart, wise, spiritual things that should be taken into consideration and can make humanity better. What I have issue with then is when those teachings are misrepresented as if he is presenting a capitalistic view, encouraging the church to tithe and encouraging the tithe to make or the church to make as much money from its members and its investments as possible. And that's why I asked Maven to show this particular parable that Jesus is attributed to Jesus from Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. By the way, David, I will yeah. insert here that, you know, President Nelson has been beating the second coming drum pretty loud and pretty sure. often. If he really believed that Jesus was coming back any day now, the way he proclaims it, maybe he doesn't even have that out that you're willing to give them. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't believe it. If he did right. believe it, he would recognize that this is no way to run a church because all this money that they are hoarding is going to be worthless when Jesus comes again. It's an excellent point. I, I tend to agree. It makes me wonder what's really going on in the in the in their in their mindset on this. Look at this parable. I think it's quite powerful. Thank you, Maven, for the lovely slide. If we could look at it, maybe I don't know. Maybe you it. want to read it. Yeah, read yeah, it. I'll, I'll read it for the yeah. for the listeners and for the podcast. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So this is Luke chapter twelve, verses sixteen to twenty-one, and he spake a parable unto them, saying, "The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully." And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I mean, my goodness, this is a direct criticism against what the LDS church is doing. Yeah. If you look at it, right? It's, I have this, too much money. Let's build mm-hmm. shell companies. We yes. have too much money. Let's build more shell companies. Let's <laughs> let's do this so that we can make more and more money and, in, and get the investment coming back to us. And in the process, make this revenue increase instead of using it and putting it back out into the community like the Deuteronomy tithe mandates. Put it back out. Let them use it. Let them take advantage of it. Help them immediately with their their suffering. And he didn't do that. And so God takes this person and, and takes his life. That is what Jesus teaches. My goodness, that is the antithesis of what we're seeing happening here. 
And, and I have an issue thing is with that, it that, presented as different than that. That word antithesis, that anti-word, it is the opposite of what Jesus taught, which unfortunately tends to make what the LDS church is doing anti-Christ. It does. Somebody it had to say does. it. No, it's John true. the Revelator isn't here right now. It is true. It is true. And, and there, I, I this is throughout true. the New Testament. I mean, my goodness, you're just reading these and things are coming to my mind about, uh, uh, you know, for where your heart is, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Lay up not for yourselves treasures in heaven. Uh, uh, no, lay up mm -hmm. for yourselves treasures in heaven mm -hmm, where moth mm -hmm. doth not corrupt nor thief breakthrough mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. steal. And what about mm -hmm. the whole story we hear about in church all the time about the rich young man? Yeah. The rich yeah. young man. You remember that one, right, Maven? The rich young man comes to Jesus, yep. says, hey, look, I follow all these commandments. What more do I have to do? And Jesus says, hey, you're doing great, except you have one more thing you have to do. And that's sell everything you have, give to the poor and come follow me. And the conclusion is that, the rich. What? Oh, I was going to say, I would think that the leaders of the church, I like that young man, feel that they're doing a pretty good job following his commandments. Um, but I think they I mean, the the rich young man in the story. We know how that ends and he just goes away sorrowing that he's asked to give up his money. But I don't think the first presidency would even have the humility to ask Jesus, you know, what else should we do? We're doing all this good. What else? But. Oh, right. And I think that they would probably look at that and say, well, uh, Jesus is actually saying to the rich young man, sell all thou hast and give to me that Jesus wants all the money. But that's actually not what he says in the New Testament. He says, give it to the poor and then come follow me. And then the mm -hmm. guy goes away sorry because he had much possessions, right? So it's another illustration of how it is that you can't worship God and mammon. You have to choose one or the other. And I know that I have spent decades trying to thread that needle, trying to get that rich man or at least, you know, middle class or upper middle class man through the eye of that needle and trying to find every single way I could possibly come up with it theologically to justify it, right? But you can't. And the thing that's going on with the church right now is so stunning to me because it actually illustrates to me what I never understood really about the New Testament and Jesus's teachings before, which is you can't serve God and mammon. And the church is trying to ostensibly, let's give them you know, credit, they're trying to do both, but they keep coming down on the mammon side because you can't worship both. You will either love the one and hate the other, or you will hate the one and love the other. I think Hold that's to the one said. and despise the other. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was giving you the RFM translation. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first, I think it, it switches it up, but yeah, I, um, there was someone again arguing with about this, where they were trying to talk about all the good the church does with the money that it's, that it's a substantial amount. And I said, it's, it's not if they're getting to the point that they can have billions and hundreds of billions in investments, that money is not being used. And then, but they just try to say like, you don't get it. Money can be saved and then be used. But I'm like, but that's not what's happening. If it was being used to do all the good it could be, the savings would be a lot smaller because that's how money works. Money spent today is not money building up in the future. So if there's this big hoard there, you, you get there by not spending it. And I was it, I was astounded that I was getting told that I don't know how money works <laughs> from that. Wow. And from the church's point of view, the flip side is true, is that money not spent today means people, including members and even non-members, 
who are suffering today, who will be suffering today while the church continues to hold on to this money. And the church says, we're waiting for a rainy day, folks. We're waiting for a rainy day. COVID worldwide pandemics do not qualify. We're waiting for something really big to happen before we dip into that account. And that's the, that's the allure. That's what Paul is talking about. The love of money is the root of all evil. This is evil what the LDS church is doing. I sound like I'm uh, some kind of preacher on a soapbox. I apologize. But it's when I see how real what Paul said there, what Jesus is saying here, how it really works. And having this illustration, which is very disappointing to me to be the LDS church, proving the New Testament true, but not in the way that they would like to be seen as proving the New Testament true. I was well muted. Said. <laughs> I said it myself, but I was just agreeing. So, yeah. Okay. Well, never mute yourself when you're agreeing with me, please. Okay. But but there's one there's one parable from the New Testament. If we're ready to go on, uh, yes. David. I, I don't know if you wanted yeah. from what you were talking about. Um, I do have a clip I, I from some members about that. If you, I, I do need to pull it up here. So I. I guess, is this a good time for it? Or would you rather I wait? No, no, absolutely. Let's do it now if you've got it. Anything you have, Some members talking about tithing? Yeah, this is is from Chris Lee and his brother-in-law, Mitch. And so this is just a small clip from um, a Mormon Stories episode. And I do want to say, like, when when Mitch is talking here about his family and um, the... He had a, he's a brand new dad, right? So he's doing the Mormon thing. He's young, he's in school, he's a dad, he's a newlywed. And um, there was a significant uh, health issue with the the baby when it was born and they required WIC and Medicaid and a lot of uh, help in order to be able to afford hospital bills and stuff. So um, I'll go ahead and, and play that clip here. The church's $100 billion fund, um, you know, women in the church, uh, LGBT mm-hmm. topics, uh, blacks in the priesthood, things like that. Um, yeah, kind of well, a big and swath. you, you know, you saying earlier about Theodore and um, the that's the our son financial, who had yeah, mm-hmm. the financial um, burden, mm-hmm. and then you learn about the the hundred and thirty, yeah, whatever. That's right. And yeah, all the know, money you all the money, and, and yeah. we spent eight grand of our twenty grand in a year where we had yeah. And it shows, yeah. So we, I, I looked at our tithing list, but we had spent eight grand on tithing and offerings, trying to be very generous, you know, on, at a time where we were on Medicaid for health expenses and using WIC because we couldn't afford, you know, vegetables. Um, you know, it made me very angry. Um, you know, because I believed, you know, when we were giving, you know, you know, generous. Amounts of money at that, that, you know, 8,000 might be not a lot to, to some folks, but, you know, when we were in school with kids, you know, it was a ton of money for us. Um, you know, we did our 10% and then we tried to do a lot in fast offerings and, and to learn that the church was loaded um, and that they pitched that tithing, you know, above all else, even if you're hungry, you know, whatever you always just pay, that was kind of a, a gut punch. What about the logic or the justification that the blessings are for you? The church doesn't need your money. You need the blessings. Did that? Yeah. We also need the vegetables. Um, yeah. So, you know, so it just made, it made me very angry. Um, yeah. And, and 
Like, it just shows Correct. how people's different subjective experiences really frame how we react to this information because, you know, I learned this and I'm like, dang, that's a lot of money. Like I knew they were wealthy, but man, that, yeah, that's, I could see how that's troubling, you know, but then like from your experience, like, yeah. that's, it's like, an, it's like offensive. And I always right? knew, I always knew the church was well off and, and well run from a financial perspective. And I, I always thought that was, you know, a testament to the Lord leading the church and, you know, financially the church isn't in debt and, you know, they're doing well, but I, I didn't really understand the scope. Um, and hundreds of billions, hundreds of billions in stock. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I thought a lot of it was in, you know, just real estate and you know, different church buildings and they had enough money to build chapels and temples. And, you know, I, I also didn't know, you know, church leaders were paid. Um, Okay. Well, there's a reason they didn't know how much money the church had, and that's because the church was busy hiding it. And there's a reason they didn't know how much uh, church leaders were paid because the church was busy denying it. Maven, I, I hope you're agreeing with me. You're yes, I am agreeing okay. with you. <laughs> um, I have one more clip. And um, so is this, this of anybody we know? It is. So this is actually from me. And this is because there's a time where I did need help from the church. And I talk about that in my Mormon story about the just the process of going through to get help from the bishop. And I cut this part out of the clip that I, I'm going to show. But you have to fill a form out ahead of time, uh, basically guessing all the things you need. Or I, I guess if you're more organized, you know. And then when you go there, you are shadowed by somebody the whole way through and they're taking stuff off the shelves for you so you kind of have someone hovering so you just feel like you're there's something wrong with you or you know like you're being watched so that you're not stealing more because you're a taker you know like that's kind of what you feel like even though i had been a lifelong tithe payer and i had always thought as i've seen that people say to me like if my family ever needs help i know they're covered um and i know that they've not had to ask for help and I mean, they might get help. I did get help, but it's still a really shame laden process. They make you feel guilty for like every little thing. And this is what I expressed in mind. So I'll go ahead and put that up. Like a taker, you know, I want to make sure that I, I'm not taking more than I deserve. I remember like going through and being, you know, I don't know, should I get two cans of chili? I don't know. Last week or, you know, last time I got like a bag of potatoes and I still have some potatoes left. So um, maybe one can of chili instead of two, because I still have the potatoes, right? And it, <laughs> heaven help you, like if I actually build up any kind of a, a pantry, because you definitely don't want to do that. But I mean, even something like like cake mix, I'd be like, you know, do I do I need cake mix? No, I'm a single person. What am I going to do like with a whole cake, you know? And I cut it off actually earlier than I, I thought I did because um, um, I started getting emotional here because I was thinking like, if I take a cake mix from the Bishop storehouse, what about a family of like six kids, you know, mm -hmm. birthdays mean and cake means way more to children, you know, and so and I felt guilty just for being a grown adult with a degree even in the first place, like getting this kind of help. So um, so I, you know, I would, I couldn't get myself to order a cake mix because I felt like I was taking from other people that really needed it. It was a miserable experience. The thing that struck me when you were talking about it that time was when you were talking about how you didn't feel like it would be right for you to start building up a pantry. 
that you need to use yep. everything that you've gotten from the church. You don't want to have any extra potatoes or getting another bag of potatoes when you still have some left from the bag of potatoes you got before, because that would be wrong. And at the same time, you're doing that. The church is stocking its pantry to $157 billion, yeah. current estimates are. I, that was something said to me as well as a part of the process that bishops are made to watch out for. It, it, it wasn't just my own idea from my own head. I think I would have felt that way naturally anyway, but they specifically say, if not to your face, <laughs> but I, I think um, I, they don't want people building up like and stockpile stockpiling uh, mm -hmm. food from you know, from Deseret Industries. And so I, I talk about changing to a different food pantry and they didn't care. They just, they had a certain level. If you're, you know, a single person family, you, there's this many cans of this, there's that you can, and it was really generous. It was more than I could ever use all the time. So I was always coming in under what their limits were for one person. And I was actually able to build a pantry. At, without now, Maven, you just, you did just switch there from going to the church's welfare system to, to going to a non-church. Uh, yes, system. a local food pantry. It's called Tabitha's Way. There's two of them in Utah County. And so if anybody needs help, if you're in that area, I, I highly recommend going there and not the Bishop Storehouse if, you, um, if you're able to. Much better experience all around. David, we're going to make our way to the parable of the talents. Before we do that, was there anything you wanted to share about uh, any thoughts you're having while watching these clips? No, just that it reinforces um, the feelings that I have had and, and the reason why I wanted to jump in and, and, and share a historical understanding of these texts that are used to defend the practices that the LDS Church does. Well, if we can get to the talents then, because this seems to be the one that's right on the money. This is the one that I hear being used the most, including in church sources, to justify the church's hoarding of this wealth. We've got this parable. It's right there in the New Testament. It's Matthew 25. It's about this rich man. He's got three slaves. It says servants here. Uh, and, um, you know, he gives one of them. What is it? He gives one five talents of gold. He gives another mm -hmm. one two talents. And he gives another one one talent of gold. It sounds like a joke. But it's a parable. And rich man goes away heads off to Salt Lake City. He'll be back in a while. And in the meantime, the guy, the servant with five talents invests it, gets five more talents by the time the rich man comes back. The servant with two talents invests it, gets two more talents on top of it by the time the rich man gets back. But the third servant does not invest his one talent. He buries it so that it's safe, apparently. And when the rich man comes back, he unburies it. He gives him the one talent of gold and says, here's the talent of gold. I didn't improve it. And in the parable that Jesus tells, he commends the first two servants who did invest and improve on those talents. And he excoriates the third servant who did not invest and simply buried the talent and had only the talent that was originally given him to return to the rich man upon his return. Now, that seems to really justify the church. And I've certainly heard it used that way. Your thoughts? Dr. Bakavoy. Thank you. You're exactly right. In fact, the LDS First Presidency, when it has been confronted about its financial investments and the wealth that it has, will oftentimes use this parable and say that their actions are biblically directed and supported by Jesus's teachings and use this parable this way. I even, um, you know, it, it's, it's the frequent one that is used um, 
by those who defend the practice, even uh, who are not directly connected with the church. I remember that was basically used by uh, the Deseret News in 2019 when some of this information about how much money the church had in its portfolio was revealed. And uh, most recently, my goodness, in February, when um, the ruling against the church for its illicit financial investments came out, Deseret News did another piece by uh, written by two employees of Ensign Peak. Is where this the they one? Yeah. Ah, yes, thank you. Or at least Roll. former employees. <laughs> yes, it was that one. It was in so last month from when we were recording this in February. And in it, they talk about the fact that it is biblically mandated to invest resources and use them wisely. And they use this parable as a reference to that. Well, there are many problems with this. The first is, is that the story is itself a parable, which means a symbolic, moralistic teaching. Um, when we take it as in the way that the LDS church and its defenders are, it's taken as something that is not a parable, but in fact, a literal teaching. So in fact, the talent actually represents money. And Jesus is telling people to invest and make as much money as they possibly can. And yet, if we look contextually at everything that Jesus teaches, that literal reading of the story doesn't accord with what we see him professing regarding wealth and the need to take care of the poor and the needy. It certainly does not accord with the previous parable that we considered in this podcast. So perhaps Jesus did not mean that people should literally take their money and go make as much as they possibly could. Perhaps instead he used this example as a symbolic teaching as to what he hoped his disciples would do and that the talent isn't truly money any more than the coin that the woman who goes searching for her lost coin in Luke but cannot acquire it. Really, it's not money that he's talking about, but it's actually something else that the money represents. And that is certainly the case here in the I wanna, story. Sorry, can I jump ahead, in Nathan. on this? No, yeah. So this was something that fascinated me when I was reading through what you sent us. And I. Mm -hmm. it, it was so, because this is the idea that I've had and how I've been taught to understand it. And for just a split second, I was like, I think David Bakavoy might be wrong. And then I was like, that's a silly thing to say. Um, and so <laughs> no, I, no, I was no, like, I've got to again. <laughs> I was like, because to me, it seems so clearly that that's what that was saying. So I was, I was thinking, how could it be opposite when, you know, he's saying here, like he's praising them. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Uh, thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. That's clearly a good thing. And then for the one that was, you know, uh, he was angry, like he excoriated, as you said, RFM. Um, Take the talent from him, give it unto him, which have 10 talents. And then, yeah, it talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's in verse 30. So I this fascinated me. So I, I just really want to... Um, I guess really sink our teeth into this one. So I hope everyone can understand um, as you explain it, David, why it's backwards, why the thing that seems obviously bad is, is not bad the way we think it is. And what seems obviously good is not in the way that, that we've been taught to understand it. That's perfect. Thank you so much. This Megan. is huge. And it is huge. And because it's the one that is often and most frequently used. And, and, and I guess the way to frame it is to look back at what everything else that Jesus said 
about that it is impossible to serve both wealth and mammon. It, it, this is so Jesus did not teach ideas that people should take and make as much money and investments as they possibly could, and that it should be that that was moral and ethical and encouraged them to do. That's the first thing to recognize because it would fly in the face of everything else that we see him professing regarding the topic. That's number one. Then number two, recognize that it is a parable, which means he's using a story to illustrate other concepts through that symbolism. So the talent is really not money in this reading, but in fact, the way that many scholars interpret it is that it actually represents the word of God that, um, that is given to some, and then Jesus is being critical symbolically through the parable of those who take that word and just hang on to it for themselves, but don't go out and share it with others and expand it so that others can receive that benefit. And he uses the story symbolically to represent that idea. Now, okay, um, the thing to note is if that reading is correct, then it would completely accord with LDS scripture specifically. Because DNC section 60 verse 2 uses this story. Thank you for pulling it up. And we read right there. Do you want to read it, Maven? Yeah. All right. Just making sure I wasn't muted. All right. But it. with some, I am not well pleased for they will not open their mouths, but they hide the talent which I have given unto them because of the fear of man. Woe unto such, for mine anger is kindled against them. This was a great missionary scripture, by the way, when you felt like you weren't really you know, approaching everyone you should, and you let a few people walk past you on the street, this is where you go to whip yourself into shape. Yeah, absolutely. And, and look what he's doing with the parable, with the, the text of the parable, the panic, the talent. He's not pleased because they hide the talent. They are unwilling to open their mouth and bear witness and use their words. The talent is the word of God that they have within them that needs to be shared, but they do not share it. They bury it in the earth because of the fear of man. So even LDS scripture takes the parable, not as a literal um, uh, card, a blank card to, to invest as much money as possible, but rather to teach the importance of spreading the good word and not burying it in the ground. LDS scripture doesn't take it literal. Why is the LDS church taking it literal to justify their financial investments and extracting money from the poor and the needy? I like this comment here. If I can read it real fast. It says, uh, funny how when Joseph Smith went to Salem and was promised he would find treasure in the basement of a house, the church explains that the true treasure was the converted souls. But when he teaches the parable of talents, the Lord clearly means money. It will always mean whatever suits the church's need at the time. Brilliant. Well, it's a powerful analysis right there that right is from, from church history. And I like this verse because this tells people that, no, nah, it's a it's just what it is identified as in the Bible, a symbolic story. If you take it literal to say invest money is what God wants us to do and invest this resources, then you are misreading what Jesus was talking about. Now, I, I, I sorry, go ahead, RFM. Yeah, I, I interrupted. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, it's interesting to me that apparently uh, Doctrine and Covenants and Joseph Smith and or God speaking through him came up with an interpretation of this parable that aligns with biblical scholars. And yet that was then and this is now where that has been left far behind and the church has turned its back on Joseph Smith. 
whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, however you see it, I think it's indisputable. The church has turned its back on this interpretation and now wants to advocate a literal understanding of the parable. Yes, precisely. And then, then I I know we're we're getting about because this is a great show because it only lasts about an hour. So I don't want to use up too much time, but I would like to draw our audience's attention to the fact that this parable has been read even another way by biblical scholars. And I think it's worth addressing, and that is taking it from its original context in Matthew and actually putting it into the mouth of Jesus in a historical perspective. And when they do, my goodness, it actually even presents more problems for what the LDS Church is doing. The thing that's interesting, another thing interesting to me is when I was preparing for the show and I read through Matthew 25, not only was I surprised that the parable of the talents was in Matthew 25, I would have pegged it a lot earlier. But what really surprised me is that it is sandwiched in that chapter between two other parables. The first one being the parable of the ten virgins, which we hear ad nauseum in the LDS church. But that's one thing. The surprising thing was the third parable, the other side of the sandwich, that this parable of the talents appears immediately before. And that's the parable of the sheep and the goats. Do you have any comments about that? Of course, the sheep and the goats is where, you know, goats left hand when Jesus comes to judge or uh, right hand is all the sheep. And then he tells the parable about, uh, you know, you came, you visited me in prison, you fed me, you clothed me. Those are the sheep. That's good. Uh, I was in prison. You didn't visit me. I was naked. You didn't clothe me. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. Sorry, that's the goats. So I would think that at a basic level, one would need to try and understand the parable of the talents in light of the parable of the sheep and the goats that immediately follows it in Matthew 25. Your thoughts? Very good. And I would add to that, RFM, that the parable of the sheep and the goats is one that most New Testament scholars are convinced can truly be attributed to the historical Jesus. Because not everything in the New Testament can. From an historical perspective, some of it is elaboration and the telephone game and things that are later attributed to him that re that reflect later theological and ecclesiastical concerns. Uh, but that is one that most scholars would agree is actually one probably Jesus said him and taught that because it actually runs in, in contradiction to most Christian theological perspectives or from the view of the later Christian church. Because remember, those that he accepts that are part of the kingdom, they don't even know who he is. They just went out and did things. They went out and served those who were in prison. They served the hungry and the need. They didn't even know who Jesus was. And they're like, when did we serve you? We don't know who you are. He's like, when you did this, you did it to me. And that's why you're part of my kingdom. Well, the reason that New Testament scholars feel that that is true is because later Christians will believe that in order to be part of that kingdom, one must accept Jesus as their savior. But that runs contrary to that theological perspective. It seems to reflect an earlier view where it is not necessary to, to identify Jesus as Savior, but it's actually more important to go out and do the good works that he is teaching. I have noticed this for a while, though not from that perspective, that this one parable, the parable of the sheep and the goats, is a parable in the New Testament that says, point blank, I think, that salvation at the judgment day has nothing to do with what you believe and only to do with what you do and how you treat the less fortunate. 
Precisely. And that's that's what this parable teaches, which does not accord with later Christian theological views. And therefore, historical scholars will look at it and say, since it doesn't accord with that, Jesus probably did teach that. <laughs> probably something really said. You know, we're going to make a little bit more time because we're so excited to have you on the show. David, did you want to talk at all about a certain parable or story about a widow and a couple of mites? Oh, and we'll yes. Jump in before we get there. I'm yeah, so sorry. Do. Okay. No, no. I just, I just wanted to go back to the, the parable of the talents because mm. after, well, I, I guess what I, I felt that I understood when I, when I, it flipped for me was that it, it's almost, it's telling the... The initial interpretation was that the master is the Lord, is Jesus, and and we're the servants, and so that's that's where like the saving the money and the increasing money makes him happy. But it's really just a a corrupt, uh, you know, evil rich man. And the like where the scripture says, "You you knew that I sow where I, or, or I reap where I did not sow." It's it's this taking that it's. It's basically like what we would characterize. And I'm sure somebody, there'd be somebody in the chat that would call us woke for it. But basically, rich billionaires were like you're making up money off of the, the backs of the labor of the, the people that work in their corporation for them. Um, but they're able, they hoard so much more of the wealth that is coming in through that effort. So that's how I saw that. Anyway, is that what, is that right? <laughs> Yeah, thank you, Maven. And, and and if you want to bring back that previous slide that you put together, let's hit it real quick and then we can move on like RFM wanted to do. Now, what you were looking at here is a quote from an article that was produced by a biblical scholar in um, Biblical Archaeology Review analyzing this text. And I'm not suggesting that this is the correct interpretation. My goodness, I, we've already seen a good interpretation right from LDS scripture itself. But this is another way that scholars look at it that reflects not what is around that passage itself, but really taking that teaching and putting it into the world of first century ancient Judaism. And when scholars do that, man, this is it, it actually gives us a totally different reading that I think people should be aware of. And, and what that is, is it reflects the the view that we see in the ancient world that um, that wealth was limited, that the pie was only so big, and and that if you took some wealth that you didn't rightfully own, it was only because you took it from somebody else. It's only after the Enlightenment that we see Western civilization kind of moved towards a different viewpoint regarding wealth that it is expansive. But in the ancient world, typically what we see is that the pie is only so big. And so there's only so much, there's only so many resources. And if you take more than that, it means that somebody else is going to get less than. We don't really see the world that way, but ancient people did. And so what this scholar does and what others have done with this parable of the talents is that they take the parable and put it into that context. And when you do, you receive an entirely different perspective on it. Instead, what happens is that um, it's a criticism of the wealthy slave owner who uses shell companies or slaves in this case to go out and invest money to bring in more resources for that, that slave owner so that um, he can hide his wealth from others and they won't 
they won't take a negative view of him because it was typical for people if they saw people making a bunch of wealth, then they thought, oh, he must be taking it from someone else because the pie is only so big. Mm -hmm. So from this historical perspective, what Jesus is presenting from this vantage point is the view that no, that this is what happens in the world, that there are wealthy slave owners that create shell companies or slaves to go out and invest the money for them so that it doesn't reflect negatively upon them. And then they reach the benefits of that. And then from that angle, it is pre presented from Jesus's perspective as a criticism against the investment that we see happening here by slave owners and ultimately reflects, I would argue, precisely what the LDS church is doing. So to use this text to support them, either from that historical perspective or from a parable perspective in which Jesus is teaching symbolic ideas, misconstrues this either direction. And yet that is what is done by the first presidency and those that defend it. And I I look, I'm not trying to destroy anyone's faith. I just want people to have this information so that they can make informed decisions on what they do with their resources. Who is this biblical scholar pictured? So um, the article was written in, it, it was written in Biblical Archaeology Review, and it's a scholar by the name of Richard um, Rachbah. And um, it was an article that he, he wrote called Reading the Bible Through Ancient Eyes. And I drew Maven's attention to this. Again, not because I'm suggesting that this is the absolute true meaning. I'm just saying it's another way that scholars have looked at it when they take it from its context in Matthew and put it into an ancient worldview. And when they do that, then the investor is, does not look good. And I think people should be aware of that when they take a look at this and try to use it to justify religious, spiritual um, tithe practices as are practiced in the LDS Church. David, would you mind reading this quote that we have up on the screen for those who will listen to this on audio only later? Yeah, let's do it. From the article, given the limited good outlook of ancient Mediterranean cultures, seeking more which is what we see the investors doing, was considered morally wrong because the pie was limited and already all distributed. Anyone getting more meant, and meant that someone else got less. Thus, honorable people did not try to get more. And those who did were automatically considered thieves. To have gained, to have accumulated more than one started with is to have taken the share of someone else. And so scholars who take it this direction, they use this to reflect Jesus's other teachings throughout the New Testament and say he probably was being critical of what happens sometimes when slave owners use surrogate individuals or shell companies to increase their wealth and hide the fact that they are being, well, they're trying to get more and more. Right. And something else that occurs to me, uh, you can correct me here, please do, if I'm wrong about this. The New Testament, when Jesus is talking about parables or stories or whatever, there are a number of times where he mentions a rich man, whether it's the rich man in Lazarus and Luke or anywhere else. There's lots of parables that involve rich men. And I would think that this person in this parable of the talents, he's pretty rich because he's got at least, what, five 
six, seven, eight talents that he doesn't, mm -hmm. he's not doing with anything. So he can and give slaves. Him to servants to invest. And slaves, and slaves. Right. The, which is important because the, the King James uses servants, which lessens it, but they're slaves. Yes. He owns slaves. So he owns slaves as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that maybe in light of everything else that Jesus has to say, whenever he talks about rich men, the fact that this individual is obviously a rich man should clue us right off the bat that maybe this is not a good guy from Jesus's point of view. Yes. What do you think about that? In other words, when we mm -hmm. read this, we should recognize that a person with this many goods and slaves, a rich person, is immediately, when it's coming out of the mouth of Jesus, we should be looking at him suspiciously or not as the good guy in the parable. He's the That's cartoon exactly villain. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's the LDS church. And I, I, I'm sorry, but he is because instead of because instead of taking that money and using it to help the poor and the needy and investing it like the biblical tithe does right back into the community, he's using it to make more and more and more and more money. We've already mm -hmm. seen that Jesus doesn't like that that model, because when you do that, you're you're using the worldly investment schemes and systems which are antithetical to what God wants people to do. That's Jesus's theological view. Look, I, I, I tell you guys, I, to me, I, I connect spiritually with what Jesus is talking about here. But at the end of the day, if the LDS church leaders, whom I once revered as great spiritual authorities, if they went to our people and they just simply said, God has spoken to us. And, and he wants everyone to live this law of consecration by paying 10% of their, of their increase to the institution for our investment. And if they did that, I, would, I wouldn't agree with it. But what, how could I argue against such a viewpoint? Because that would be their spiritual perspective that they are articulating God's will. And, 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 and those who understand it and accept it as such, are, are doing so with full consent. It's when it's when they give this mandate and then frame it in the perspective of that this is a biblical and therefore eternal mandate that people should live. I feel like I should speak up as someone who has spent a lifetime studying these texts and say, well, they're not, they're not using these texts correctly. There are other ways that scholars have interpreted them. And in fact, they're actually sometimes taking them in an opposite direction of the way that they were intended by the original authors. And I feel like, I feel like I need to share that. I, I, it's, it would be selfish of me to just sit back and say, okay, I get it, but I'm not going to say anything. And even though I would much rather just go hiking in the mountains and play live music and, do, and dance with my friends... I think people should know this. People should understand that and then make their their informed consent as to what they're going to do with their resources to support or not support the LDS church. Yes. And what we know from the SEC order is that not only has the church been hoarding vast amounts of wealth, they have also been moving heaven and earth in order to conceal that fact from its members and from everybody else in the world, except for seven individuals, the three members of the first presidency, the three members of the presiding bishopric and the general manager of the Ensign Peak Advisors Investment Group. Yeah.
We've got to hit the the widow's mites because that's we're almost thing, done. Right? We're almost done, and we're almost out of time. Thank you both so much. I'm really grateful for giving me this opportunity to share because, as people can tell, I I I want people to know this. I want them to understand this, and then make informed decisions. But yes, oftentimes the widow's mite is then used to to say, "Oh, look at the faith. The church is taking the widow's mite." and investing it in a wise way to make more and more wealth. And they use this passage. Um, what I would point out is, is, is something that is really quite clear. The first time that this, this um, story is told to us historically, at least in the Gospels, in, is in Mark, because Mark is the earliest New Testament Gospel. It was written about 68 BC, uh, uh, sorry, CE. We can be pretty precise on it because of some of the information that it, it has pertaining to the temple. But in this section, if we look at the surrounding material, it's all placed in condemnation that Jesus is giving about the priest who are taking things from the poor and the needy in the temple and in religiously and, and, and using it to increase their status and their position and the authority of the temple or the religion itself, if you will. Um, Jesus is not, I mean, he certainly praises this woman. Clearly, they says, oh, she has such great faith. But if we look contextually, it is a criticism because the priest of the temple should not be taking the widow's last mite. It is wrong for religious authorities from Jesus' perspective to do so. He says this over and over again, and it is what frames this narrative. And so to use it and say, oh, that's good. Um, poor people should give their last mite to the church instead of paying for their medicines and their food is a complete distortion of what is happening here. Because contextually, this woman is giving her last might, and she, what ultimately historically gets Jesus killed is the fact that he objects to the, what the priests are doing in taking money from the poor and the needy and keeping that information and those resources in the den of robbers. That is what he symbolically portrays in his cleansing of the temple. And ultimately what gets him killed is that he objects to the fact that the temple is being used this way. So when we say, oh, look, the widow should give her last might to the religious authorities. That's what faith is, which is often the way that this is used. It actually contradicts what Jesus was all about and what he was trying to convey and what happens contextually in this story. And that is the surrounding framework is such that, yes, it's great that she has this faith, but damn it, those religious authorities should not be taking her last might. They should be using their power and their influence to take care of her and her needs, which is what Jesus teaches and what the Bible professes in its diversity of text on this source. So I feel pretty passionate about this, that when it's misrepresented and used to get people to donate more and more to an institution that takes that and that uses it for illegal financial investments and that uses it to build shopping malls, when it's 19 and 20 year old young men are going out and telling the people that God wants them to give to this resource because it's a biblical mandate, that hurts. I'm not okay with that. And I... And I don't like to get involved, but I but I have to say something because this has bothered me. And, 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 and you know what? The LDS Church made me. 
I was raised a Latter-day Saint. They inspired me to care for the poor and needy. They inspired me to be honest. They inspired me to do these things and to dedicate a lifetime to studying the scripture and devoting myself to the institution and to academic scholarship. So it hurts when I see them misrepresenting these texts and doing things that I just know are contradictory to what Jesus and these passages profess. And they do so and they hurt people. And that hurts me. And so I got to say something. Well, I appreciate your coming on this show to say it. Um, I don't know that there's anything I could say that would uh, be suitable to follow what you've just said there, David. Maybe we could take some calls unless you have something yeah. else you'd like to add first, Maven. No, we can take calls. Um, I'm not entirely sure my system is set up correctly. So um, whoever, when I take the first call, if you could just stay on the line, I've got a, a couple backup ideas uh, ready if we're not all able to hear. So um, let's go ahead and um, I'm going to try, this one might be a familiar person here. All right, caller, can you hear me? It's from a 208 number. Okay, I hear something. Do you guys hear RFM? Okay, yes. No. Um, okay. All right, Plan how B. about now? Can you hear me? You cannot? Okay. All right, so the, yeah, it's Colby. Okay, so can you guys hear Colby? No, I cannot oh. hear Colby. Wait, is it Colby Townsend? No. Colby, Colby Reddish. Reddish. Colby. I am okay. Colby with so, a K. All yeah. right, I, I'm going to try something else here. One more thing. I hope Colby Reddish is feeling okay since you sounded excited when you thought it was someone other than me. <laughs> okay, Colby, I, I, I love all Colby's. <laughs> I like Colby cheese personally. I, I'm trying to ask Colby if he can hear me and I'm, I'm guessing not. Do you want to just give out your personal no. cell phone number? <laughs> Maven and have people call you on that. Would, that. would that be a plan C? I like that plan. Did you guys, did you hear feedback there just a second ago? Nothing. All is silent as the Sphinx on this end. Yeah, it's just silent. It's funny. I'm hearing you <laughs> say it again. Okay. Sorry. If you can hold on, I'm going to try something else here. We're going to hold on for a few minutes while Maven tries something else here. In the meantime, if any of you would like to ask questions, maybe if you put them in the live chat, and maybe if you put them in all caps, that we could identify them as a question. I'm taking a leaf out of the Backyard Professor's book on that one. Now we've lost David, so everything's going down the crapper at the Can end of turn... the program. Yeah, are you, if you're listening to the show. No, 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 you guys, you guys, I just muted it because, yeah, go ahead. But I'm ready. <gasps> Sorry. Um, yeah, I think Colby's not coming through, but I guess we could just do it like it was done before and I can I can relay. Should we yeah, try Colby, it that way? That's all I've got right now. I'm afraid. I'm blaming Colby. I think he just blew up the system. Um, yeah. OK, so go ahead, Colby. I will and I will relay it. He wanted to thank uh, Dr. Bakavoy for sharing his expertise. I mean, that's it? We've been waiting this long for that? Oh, wait, there's more. I'm sorry, Maven, go ahead. Maven's trying to concentrate. Shut up, everybody. 
Oh, yeah. Too much fun. Okay. Mormonism Live. Okay, Maven, word for word. Colby, would you keep it brief? Come on, Maven's hey, trying Colby, to remember all this stuff. I'm not going to be able to remember all this, Colby. I. It's the freaking Gettysburg Colby, Address. I'm not going to be able saying. to remember all of this. So, uh, Colby was commenting um, that even now, like with the interest, the church could be just using the interest. It could be doing a ton of good and still keeping all of their principle. Um, so, was your question like, why aren't they doing that at least? Yeah, why would we expect them to help the poor and needy now when they've, you know, gone through all the work they've done to hide it? Thank you, Kobe. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it up to you guys and I'm gonna still try to figure out the sound. So thank you so much. Thanks, Colby. Sorry about the problems with the um, you know. Anyway, yeah, the great comments. I think that's probably true, at least from this end of the conversation that I could hear. David's back with us. And um, I don't know, that was more of a comment than a question, right, Maven? Okay. Well, we understand the principles and ordinances are very important to the church. We, I just didn't realize until now that principle was spelled with an A-L at the end. Little financial humor there. Going over like a. I was balloon. I was laughing, but I was muted, so it's it's like, <laughs> it's like you're always muting yourself at the worst you, possible I, time. <laughs> hey, can we get some people maybe making comments, asking questions? Are there any in the live chat who have wrecked my read? I think we lost everyone, man. I started preaching, okay. man, and they they just all left. No, they love it when you preach. Let me see here if I can find anybody who's saying anything. About I've, I'm turning on my live chat now. I usually don't do this because it's very distracting. Yes, William Charles is saying whoop, whoop. Okay, that's not helpful. Let me try and get down here to the bottom. Wow, it takes a long time. Not that that was a bad comment. The whoop, whoop, I'm sure in context was very good. William Charles. Boy, I have to scroll. There's a lot of comments on here. And I'm not, why is it not going all the way down? Maybe there's so many. Okay. I tell you what, I think now would be a good time for you to sing that song, David. Do you have your guitar handy? <laughs> Fill in. You know what? I Thank you. I'll sing. All right, everybody. Yes, this, uh, this cloud does have a silver lining, and you're about to hear that silver lining in stereo. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for letting me. I will, man. But you guys get this going. You can stop me. But this is one I was talking about at the beginning that, it's just been a big issue in my life. And um, yeah, so this is a song that I wrote when I was a young kid, like 16 years old, and had been influenced by my concern for taking care of the poor and the needy, specifically in third world countries. So this is Nickels and Dimes. Let me know when we're ready to go. It's so cold. Maria starts to cry. Sometimes I wish I could just lay down and die. And I know she needs me. Yes, I know that she needs me. And so I beg for nickels and dimes. 
dirty corner You tend to feel that you're not so alone I hold my cup to you You just walk on by And if I'm lucky then I'll get your nickels and dimes Jose's been gone for such a long time in a foreign land where he promised he would find maybe there's some way and he could find it somehow Bring home more than just nickels and dimes. But it gets so cold, and Maria starts to cry. You guys still there? <laughs> can you hear me, David? I can hear you. Yes. Okay. I was asking, what do you? Did feeling? that come through? That? Oh, absolutely. It came through. Great. Oh, good, good, good. How are you feeling? Oh, yeah. as you saying that it looked like you, you were know... experiencing a lot of emotion. I do. I, it's It's been an emotional song for me. Like I said, I, I felt some deep feelings when I was a young kid at 16 and that had been influenced by the, and I want to praise the LDS community that I grew up with in. And, and I was taught as a young child to care about the poor and the needy. And so I was affected deeply by these things as I experienced them as a young man, you know, growing up along the border. And, um, it, 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 it impacted who I am and what and what my values are. And my father, as I talked about, who praised the church because it passed communion in a paper cup and was not concerned about making money and 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 investments and resources and 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 beautiful chalices and things like that. I was raised to believe in those things spiritually. And and that was part of my Mormonism. And so it's it. it to see the direction that this has gone. And in fact, the way it has always been, even from the time of Brigham Young, who took advantage of his position as a president of the church to uh, acquire great wealth and live like a king in the Western uh, part of the United States off of the people. Those are things that wound me because of what I was taught and what um, my deep, my deep spiritual convictions. So, Thank you for letting me share the song. I mean, I've been playing that since I was 16 years old. And like I shared, I mean, as I've left a scholarship now and have, have just kind of gone into trying to serve the incarcerated community and then being with my family and friends dancing and having fun, 
um, I like to come back to live music and, 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 and perform many of the songs that I wrote that have been influential in my life. And that's one of them. So I really appreciate being able to share this on this, on this show because man, I was 16 years old and it, it helped me to express a lot of the concerns that I had. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you for playing that for us. That was beautiful. Well, I'm wondering about Maven. I, I picture her scurrying about trying to come up with some way of making a connection with the callers. But all I'm seeing right now is a black screen. So I'm left in limbo, so to speak, or spirit prison. Hey, what the heck happened there? No, I can't hear you at all. What? Maven's making a pouty face. What is it? Can you hear me? Yes, I hear you. Well, that was brief. <laughs> That's woman's love. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Dude, that was so sexist. Come on, man. You know where that's from. That's total Hamlet. Anyway, uh, so I hear the word brief, and as woman's love immediately comes to mind, I apologize. Uh, Maven, yes. Do we have a connection? I feel like Maven is our person on the street. And the person on the street who we cannot hear. And she's gone again. Well, you know, I'd hate to close out this show if she actually has something she wants to say. But I can't hear her anyway. There were like two words that I heard. And then she popped off the screen. Like Barbara Eden in I Dream of Jeannie. I hope that wasn't sexist. Any Here she is again. She's going to give it another try. Maven, yes? Yeah. Well, I heard something. Speak, Maven. Nothing, but not like... Okay. <laughs> What I'm actually saying, I'm just really sorry for everyone that's trying that, yeah, tried to call in. Um, I, I had to reset all of my stuff because I was moving out of my hospital bed. And so, yeah, this was something that I and I thought I had some backups and apparently not. So um, that's OK. While you've been gone, David and I have agreed that we're going to blame Bill. Okay. <laughs> no, I feel really bad. Where is Bill real? I thought I the only reason I agreed to do this was because I thought he was gonna be here. Did you Well, guys I'm hear sorry, that? he heard you were coming on and he decided to skip town. <laughs> I think that's what happened. Hi, Kevin. <laughs> no, actually he's on a cruise somewhere a around Barbados. Are you guys able to hear it at all? Can you go ahead and say something, Kevin? I don't get it. Kevin, speak up. Okay. Yeah, I can hear you, but I guess no one else is able to. So I'm sorry. I think we'll just have to call it here. Yeah. Call, I we'll call for next calling week the show. We'll take it. What was that? You know what? Calling the show. It's 7:57 p.m. It, but that's the cool thing about a live show is it's like if it works great, it works great, and we can't get callers, and that's all right too. And the great things about not having callers tonight, although I really wish we could have had them in, because I know we have a lot of really smart listeners to the show who had a lot of great questions they wanted to ask you. David, but I really think that the silver lining to this cloud is that we got David to sing that song for us live <laughs> on Mormonism Thank Live. You. Where else are you going to get this kind of entertainment? Hey, you know what? And, and the fun thing for me is that um, we recorded that. I play in a live band here in Salt Lake and we recorded that song and we put it so people can stream it if they want to hear it. It's um, Where would we find that? Okay, Where would we find called, that? Yeah, the, the band that I play with locally here is called Dead Cowboys, um, which is and and so you can the Dead Cowboys, like it doesn't matter, man. It, it it's YouTube, it's Spotify, it's Apple, 
whatever um, are the songs that I wrote and that we've re recorded or if they're available. So I appreciate being able to share that as well as these convictions that I have. Thank you both Maven and RFM because there are some questions. Yeah. I don't know if I didn't know if you were ending, so I wanted. You mean there are some questions listen. that you? What do you mean? Yeah. I mean in the chat, there's someone asks what you think about the show Chosen, and then we have Burrell Bikes asking for a book you wrote that you could recommend oh. to the audience. Okay, so let's go with. Uh, do you have any particular feelings about the show Chosen? I haven't watched it. I don't watch a lot of TV, but have you seen okay. it, David? You know, I have not. Um, I'm like you, RFM. I, 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 I don't watch very much TV. I wish I had time to watch more, but I, between I live music and and things that I'm doing, I, I, I haven't. I, I know it's a popular show about Jesus, so I haven't, I haven't seen it. But, um, but I, uh, you know, I can just comment and look. Jesus is going to look differently depending upon which lens people take to to analyze him and the the view that i take now in my life is historical and um and so i'm sure a movie like that which 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 inevitably hollywood wants to make things sentimental and and what i've seen in the past is that um they'll take they'll take jesus and they make they take all of the gospels together which are desperate and very different and they'll blend them all together to tell a jesus story which is not consistent with Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, but reflects them all. And in the process creates like Jesus soup, like you mix it all together, the different views and put it out together for emotional impact. So um, that's what I've seen thus far in, and yet I haven't seen that show, but I, if I were to watch it, that's probably what I would see. Yeah. Because how do, you do, how do you do it any other way? Unless you say the chosen according to, yeah. Mark or Matthew or Luke or John or yeah. third Nephi. Yeah. There was a bit of a hubbub bub recently. I know regarding the chosen though. I've not watched it. I knew that there was some concern among our evangelical Christian hmm. and very bigoted friends that there might be some Mormon influence on their chosen Jesus show. <laughs> oh, that would be funny. So there, there was the book recommendation question. And then it looks like, uh, we have questions also about uh, conference uh, predictions, if they're going to mention this or at all, or if they're going to double down on tithing. Um, I don't know. I don't know if David, if you're even interested in that. Was the book recommendation a request from David for from books to read on a certain subject? Burrell bikes, Chris Burrell. It's Chris, right? Yeah, I think he says, I love David's scripture commentary. I would love if he has a book of his to recommend. <sighs> Um, you know, on this topic, it, it's tough because it's not something that most scholars have explored because going back to what we talked about, despite the way that it's represented, that it is this infamous and important biblical mandate, there are diversity of views on tithing in the Hebrew Bible and the Christian I New think Testament. he's asking in general. I think he'd be happy to have anything from you. Oh, on a good book to recommend. Yeah. I don't know. I'm ADHD, so I read like sections and parts of all books, but I never finish any of them. <laughs> I'm like you, Maven. <laughs> so I don't I, know. Yeah, I was like, I relate to that. I relate to that a lot. Yeah. I'm the opposite. I, I have to read the book to the end. 
and I can't read the end first. I got to beginning to end before I pick up another book. You know, I, I would say for historical Jesus studies, Bart Ehrman does a wonderful job um, explaining the scholarship to a, a general audience. And I have, um, at one point in my life, I had read every single book and article that he had ever written. And the past couple of years, I've lost interest in keeping up. So I haven't continued with that and cannot make that claim in a surgeon. But um Oh, okay. If I, okay. I think maybe for historical Jesus studies, maybe one of the most wonderful books for a general audience would maybe be Bart's book on um, uh, um, how Jesus became God. Maybe that's a good one to read and recommend. I, I loved that book. It was a summary of, of a lot of important ideas. How I just Jesus became book. God. How Jesus became God. Okay. Chris. So mm -hmm. I have a book here that I just grabbed when I was off screen, which I find actually literally good. Okay. Just so you know, this is the book I'm talking about. It's written <laughs> by some, some uh, up and comer called David Bakavoy. Ba ba is that it? Bakavoy? I think it's Bakovi. Hey it's man, Bacovi. it's, it's the, it's Bach, like the chicken sound that it makes, man. It's a, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a Ukrainian name. It is not Russian. I need to specify that it's Ukrainian. Oh, wow. It's yeah. called Authoring the Old Testament, Genesis to Deuteronomy by David Bakavoy. And this uh, came out a few years ago. Is it correct to say this is a, at a time? Oh, I finished reading this on July 8th, 2016. On July 8th? Really? Yes, I put that's my birthday. That's my birthday, RFM. This is serendipitous. I don't know. I, I've I have we, loved you for RFM. I have loved you for many years. You and I have been friends and apologists together for many, many years. From a distance, in case that, you're wondering. The fact that you finished that on my birthday is really special. Thank you. I had no idea, honestly, but I put July 8th, 2016. How old were you then on that birthday, by the way? 2016. I don't know, man. I don't even know how old I am now. I don't even care, man. I well, it's X minus seven, whatever we it was. Have, but this we have was a really good a question. Oh, sorry. I, I oh, thought you were I'm done sorry. Right. No, go ahead with the questions. Um, I thought this one was really good and, and pertaining to tonight's topic. What's the best use of the church's wealth and why? How long and how much is enough? And based on what? What If we had our way, what would we see the church doing? I think that's a great question. RFM, do you want to go? I would say, and I have had this question asked to me, and I think at a minimum, at a minimum, let's just start with this, okay? Let's have the church follow its own law of tithing and take a tenth off the top and a tenth every year after that. And that would be a good start because if the estimates are correct at Ensign PP and at $157 billion right now, that would be $15.7 billion off the top and then a tenth off the increase after that. And I'm not saying that should finish it, but that would be a good starting place, I think. What do you think, David? Okay, so I have thought a lot about this and and I... and. Uh, here would be my recommendations. Number one, um, stop connecting tithing with an ability to participate in saving and exalting ordinances. That makes tithing no longer voluntary the way it is in the Bible. 
but instead makes it mandatory if a person wants to experience spirituality and participate in sacred ordinances, including watching their children married. That is, I mean, that's what Martin Luther had objections to, right? That is something that all spiritual people have objected to. And it should end right now, immediately with the LDS church. A person should be able to baptize their child if they don't pay 10% of their increase to the LDS church for them to build shopping malls. That's a given. Start with that. Stop mandating this, this donation. Stop mandating and taking it from the poor and needy. That would be the first thing that I would recommend. And then take and, and, and look at the wealth that they have and reinvest it into, the, into the helping the general population. And it could be easy things. Like when I was growing up, there were professional janitors that took care of every single church building. And, and then the church with under Gordon Beagley said, oh, we can't afford this. So the members should do this and pay for it and give 10% and give and give and give. At some point, please hire professional cleaners to take care of your buildings so that, that it's not placed upon the, the, the single mothers and the poor and the needy and those who are so busy working to go and clean toilets in your buildings but pay for it to be done professionally. That would be a big start. Just do that and stop collecting funds. If you'll do that, I'll have lots of less problems with what's happening. I think they I, know, you I would, I would start with that. Yeah. Your thoughts, Maven? Uh, it's the same. It, it would be to stop making it mandatory. I mean, for everyone, um, but especially the people who need it. I, I think not even just not making it mandatory because people can still over scrupulosity still want to give more than they should. But, you know, maybe flip it so that it's um, what's that scripture that, you know, a, a man who's not able to care for his own family is worse than an infidel. That one, like make that the focus, like you should be able to take care of your family first. And if you're, you know, if you're doing that well and you've got leftovers, then you're then you're good. You know, whereas it would, you know, it would look bad if you were taking food from your children to give money to the church. It's but it's basically what you said. Yeah. Not making it mandatory and then actually using the money for good. So, you know, we don't have this clip, but an idea just popped in my head. And it's this whole idea about the church having lots of wealth, but being ashamed of it or at least not wanting other people to know, which I think connotes a kind of shame. It happens individually too, doesn't it? Do you remember that uh, that broadcast to the young adults in, I yeah. think it was South Europe and Africa, where Elder Holland was there and Sister Bonnie Corden was there. Do you remember what I'm talking about, Maven? Yeah. Um, and Elder Holland about is talking- having any money. Yes, and Elder Holland is talking about how, you know, he doesn't have hardly any money. And Bonnie Corden, when she got married, doesn't have, uh, I think she said, you know, we didn't have much. And then Elder Holland says, well, you don't have much now, do you? And of course, you know, they're loaded. Bonnie Corden is totally loaded and her husband's loaded. And I'm sure it's millions and millions of dollars. But she says, to agree with it. Elder Holland, she says, oh, you are amazing, Maven. You are the amazing Maven. <laughs> Where she says, no, we don't have much money because they're loaded, but they know they're not, they're embarrassed of it. So they deny it in spite of the fact that it's true. So yeah, let's see this, Maven. And then I want to hear your thoughts about it, David and Maven. You get it. All right. I hope everyone can hear. 
sorry, one second. Actually put it up on screen. <laughs> that will help. Is it a bad idea to get married before you have a good amount of savings in the bank? You and Derek didn't have any money in the bank. <laughs> you we don't have any money now. We don't have any money now. <laughs> you know, isn't that a tender question? Because, um, yeah, I don't know how question. much further you were going with it. No, but, that was it. It yeah. was a tender question that what almost had me question. projectile vomiting. <laughs> I apologize. But yeah, she's loaded, but she has to agree with him. We don't have much money now. So what's happening individually with some church leaders like Bonnie Corden and apparently like Elder Holland, who's got to have an idea that, yeah, she does have some money now. And Elder Holland. <laughs> did I say, what did I say something well, else? Well, I mean, I, himself, like, I, well, you're saying he knows that, that Bonnie is not in dire straits, but, and, but right. neither is he. Yeah. And it's this whole, this whole act that uh, I'm seeing play out individually with these church leaders in this clip, which is like a microcosm of what the church is doing as an institution where they're richer than Croesus, but they don't want anybody to know about it. I Your just thought had a thought. Or maybe. I, I don't know if this is, if anybody has the ability um, to know this or not, but we know there are very, very wealthy members of the church that are happy to give above and beyond the 10% tithing. Um, I almost wonder, it just occurred to me that I, I suspect that the majority of the funds the church pulls in would be from those like top 1%, those extremely wealthy donors. Um, and that the widows might, so they're still happy to take probably amount to actually still a really small fraction of what they are raking in. Um, yes. My brother was a, a ward clerk and I'm, I'm seeing ward clerks like in the Exmo Reddit, uh, several of them saying like, I, because they're in that position, I, our ward brought in, you know, $2 million or $6 million last year and the yearly budget is five grand or, you know, um, my brother said that he processed tithing checks that were, you know, one tithing check, like for a month for somebody that was more than what he made the whole year. Mm. So I, I just suspect right. that. If, if they did, if the church did nothing else but stop making it mandatory for people who are needing to pay for their basic necessities, I don't think the church would even notice hardly a dip. I, I, I can't substantiate that. So don't don't take that and run with it. But I, I just I feel that I feel that that might be true. So you guys know what that means, I guess. So no, I think you're probably right, David. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I, I was going to say, Maven, you're you're absolutely correct, which is why I. I tried to talk about the connection between the law of tithing and the law of consecration. Once those two things in Mormonism are meshed as if they are one and the same, which they were not historically, but once that happens culturally, then it places a, a significant emphasis upon the importance of spiritually paying your tithing every single month to live in accordance with this eternal principle of consecration. And that is what has happened in the church. And, 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 and I see the LDS church as both victims of the institution and this ideology that is so harmful and problematic and abusers because they continue and perpetuate the abuse. So, you know, at some point we have to stop and say enough, let's look at this critically, objectively, and also maybe perhaps look at these scriptural texts that have 
have provided the inspiration for this and realize they are being distorted and actually taken in a completely different direction in which they were intended. So maybe readjust this, what we're doing and practicing as a community. Another thing this helps me understand about the New Testament, David, is that the Pharisees who are depicted as hypocrites, who are the ultra-righteous, are not really just caricatures. These people depicted in the New Testament are acting the way real people act. And I would have thought this is sort of a, a caricature. But actually, the leaders of the LDS Church are acting the exact same way. They see themselves as being the most religious, and yet they are committing the same abuses as the Pharisees in the New Testament. But the leaders of the church today are unable to see it in themselves in the same way the Pharisees of Jesus' day were unable to see it in themselves. I remember I had a phone call a number of years ago with uh, Bill Real. We were talking on the phone, and I was mentioning about the parallels between modern church leaders and the Pharisees. And Bill asked me, he says, well, don't the church leaders know their Pharisees? And I said, of course they don't know their Pharisees. The Pharisees didn't know they were Pharisees. If they knew they were Pharisees, they would stop being Pharisees. Thank you. And, and, and yes, and Jesus is very critical of what he sees as hypocrisy in the Pharisaic mood movement throughout the New Testament. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, RFM, because frequently people who are part of the ex-Mormon community will draw upon that criticism and compare the church to the Pharisaic movement and, and, and explain that the church is now being legalistic and not spiritually minded and, and violating the spiritual principles that Jesus taught. The first thing that I hope will happen is that we have seen in this podcast that that is true, that the way that they are extracting tithing and presenting it is antithetical or opposite to what Jesus truly professed. That is number one. But the number two thing I, I would add is that we must be very careful in, in, in using that rhetoric to criticize the Pharisaic and the Jewish community because the Pharisees are the grandfathers of the rabbinic movement and ultimately contemporary Judaism to some extent. And it, it jumps around historically, but, but, but referring to them as legalistic and ritualistic instead of moral, um, which, is, which is Christians tend to do and a lot of post-Mormons do when they want to criticize the church. Boy, let's be careful with that because it does tie into anti-Semitic tropes and, um, we need to be careful about that. The truth is the Pharisees were not hypocrites. They were not irrational and they were not illogical and they were not um, evil individuals. They looked at the law in a different way than Jesus did. And at times he pointed out the hypocrisy, but RFM, you're correct. My goodness, it doesn't take too critical of a mind to see that the LDS church and its leaders often find a fall into the criticisms that Jesus raised against religious institutions and individuals without becoming anti-Semitic. Very good. Maven, do you want to have the final word on tonight's show? And then we'll close it out. I don't want to have the final word after David, because that was the perfect ending. So 
It was a pretty good ending. That was great. Thank you I so thank much. Thank everyone in the chat too uh, for their support and for their patience. So yeah. yeah, thanks everybody in the chat. I hope you've been uh, kind of tame tonight. Um, <laughs> Maven, thanks so. so much for the slides, all the work you've been doing and showing up to co-host on top of all of that. Thank you so much. And David Bachoy, thank you for coming on the show to express your passions about this important subject at this important time in the history of the LDS church. We'll say goodnight to everybody. I'm sorry. Go ahead. You go, go ahead and respond there, David. I apologize. Okay. I, I, I just was going to, I was going to respond and say, RFM, you and I have been friends for many, many years now, including once we worked together as apologists back in the day. And I am grateful for the friendship. And I'm grateful for what you do and the fact that you are raising a voice on these important issues. And Maven, you are so wise and articulate and you bring such a, a knowledge to this show and you, the way you produce it and put the slides in. And I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful to both of you. And I, I love you both. And thank you because these are important issues. And I, 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 I'm not trying to destroy or take anybody's faith away. Let's just understand what these texts really are saying and then allow people to make informed decisions on what they do. Perfect. Agreed. Thank you again so much. Thanks, everybody, for watching. We'll be back next week at the same time on the same channel with another episode of Mormonism Live.